Welcome to The Buff Show, a show brought to you by Mountain Buff Real Estate. We are dedicated to chasing down the buffs of the world and bringing their expertise right to you. Welcome, guys, to this episode of The Buff Show. Today, it's just me. This is a little weird. It's been a while since it's just been me on here, but I wanted to get on here and do a quick rundown of the purchase contract. So this is key if you're buying or selling. This is the contract that dictates, I mean, the whole journey of the 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 real estate purchase. So I wanted to go over this. If you're a buyer, this is going to be specifically if you're buying a house and then I'll cover what to look for if you're selling a house, but let's jump into on buying. So we'll we'll pull it up on the screen so you can see some of this, but obviously the first key point and it's it's interesting because most of the contract is just kind of fill in where it needs to be filled in, but you need to understand the contract in order to know exactly what you're doing. And that's why you have a real estate agent there to help you out with this process because this, this contract's always changing, uh, laws are always changing, and so this is always getting updated. And even for us, it's kind of hard to keep up to date on it, but having a good understanding of this or a basic understanding will really help you understand the process. So let's jump into it. So the first key thing that I want to go over is like the buyer, who you are, if you're buying it in your personal names, an LLC or an, or a trust, like you need to have all that documentation there and ready to go. And then whoever is getting the loan has to be on the repsy on, on the contract. So if you're getting a loan in your personal name, you can't put it into an LLC or a trust like it has to go into your personal name. So there's different nuances like that. Or if you're buying it in a business and the business is the one that's qualifying for it, you got to put it in the business's name. There are ways after, if you buy it in your personal name, you can transfer it to an LLC or a trust and you can easily quit claim deed it. But there's some things you need to be aware of there. But that's the first thing is the entity or the name that you're purchasing it in. And then we'll just need your full name, and some people include their middle names or initials in there. It just makes it easier to find you and, and verify who you are. The earnest money amount. So earnest money is a, a very important piece of the puzzle. So it's basically a deposit, a form of consideration. It, sh it shows your intent, how serious you are on, on purchasing the property. If the contract goes through as follows, that, that earnest money is applied towards your down payment. If the contract goes south and you breach the contract or the seller breaches the contract, that earnest money is there to serve as liquid damages. So typically we see about 1% of the purchase price. So let's say you're buying a $500,000 house. I mean, typically we would see five grand, 10 grand or, or something like that. $5,000 earnest money. So if the, if the buyer were to breach the contract, the seller would either have access to that $5,000 as liquid damages, or they could be like, no, we don't want the $5,000. Our, our damages are more. We're going to sue you for either more damages or to perform on the contract. And that goes the same way with the seller. I think a lot of buyers don't understand that the same money, earnest money they put in there, the seller's bound by. Again, we recommend about 1%. It's all negotiable though. Back when I first got started in, into the business, like I, I would do a lot of contracts where it was like $500 or $1,000. And I never see that anymore. It's interesting how that's changed. Once you get the offer accepted, you have four days, calendar days, to get the earnest money into the brokerage trust account. Earnest money can go either to 
the, the seller into the brokerage trust account or to a title company, we always recommend the brokerage trust account. It's less regulated there. Like if, if it goes to a title company, not necessarily less, yeah, less regulated because if a title company holds it, the title company has to have the buyer and the seller both sign off before the earnest money is released, which is risky for, for both parties because if you're ever in a dispute and one party doesn't want to sign off on, say, 50 grand of earnest money that's sitting in the, the title company's account, then it's basically frozen there until the parties agree or court action or something that makes it go out. If it's in a brokerage account, the broker can release it and, auth- and disperse it according to the contract. So we have more flexibility there. So we always recommend that the earnest money goes into the brokerage trust account. You can do that in the form of a wire or a personal check. And again, you have four calendar days to, to deliver that to the brokerage account or to the, to the agent. And then the, the brokerage will have four days to get it into the trust account. The next section just talks about the property, what you're buying, inclusions. I would recommend reading through 1.1. It talks about included items, everything that's just standard included into a property. There's a difference between real property and personal property. Real property is like part of the house. Like it's it's uh, it's deeded over to you. Personal property is, is items like the refrigerator or a washer and dryer or a bed or a lawnmower, those things are not real property. They're just personal property. And if they're wanting to be included, you need to specify them here. It's way easier to get your included items into the deal when you're first offering. Like it's way harder if you agree upon a price, agree upon inclusions, and then later down the road, you're like, hey, actually we would like the gun safe or we would like the washer and dryer or we would like the refrigerator or the trampoline or whatever it is, those things are harder to get after you've done your first round of negotiations. So get this right. I've seen people just, you know, casually miss this or not have everything in there that they want. And uh, it can be an issue. And if there's things that you want them to take, make sure it's excluded. So you're like, hey, we want you to take the the crappy trailer or whatever it is. Like, we don't want you to leave that stuff here. If there's if there's a lot more than just a, a few things, then you have to do what's called a personal property transfer agreement and bill of sale. That gets hairy, especially if you're getting a loan. Lenders don't like to lend on a lot of personal property. So keep this minimal. I've had lenders have issues with including in a lawnmower or a four-wheeler or something like that. So you just have to be careful that you're, the lenders don't feel like they're lending on a $5,000 four-wheeler and that's being wrapped into the loan for the house. The next part I really want to cover is the purchase price. So obviously you're going to have the the full purchase price. Your earnest money is going to be counted towards as like a down payment or deposit towards that purchase price. Uh, you can do an additional earnest money, which... I never do. I rarely see that. Your loan amount would be whatever loan amount you're uh, qualified for. I always, I, I have a lot of clients that they're like, well, we could do 10% up to 25% down. I always recommend going the higher number because in here it talks about how any amount shown in sections 2.1C and 2.1E may be adjusted as deemed necessary by the buyer and lender without like having to get authorization from the seller. So if you're capable, financially capable and and prepared that you could put down a greater amount, but then later on uh, you and the lender decide you only want to do 20% instead of 25%, you can easily adjust that and you don't need to let the sellers know. But it's always better to 
put more there just so you look stronger when you're being compared with other offers if there are any. This is where you talk about some seller financing as well. If you have seller financing, you'd have an addendum. And then the balance of the purchase price and cash and settlement, this would be whatever down payment you're bringing in addition to the earnest money. So if you're bringing $50,000 down payment, but you have $5,000 earnest money, you would subtract that earnest money from your your down payment. And so you'd be $45,000 there. And then it would equal your total purchase price. 2.2 talks about the sale of a buyer's property. If you have a house that you need to sell in order to qualify for the loan, it has to be disclosed here. If you can't buy the property you're trying to buy without selling your house and you don't disclose that, it's it could be an issue. It's deceit. It needs to be disclosed there. Possession 3.3 is another big thing that I want to cover. This is when you get the keys to the house. Everybody thinks it's when you go and sign at the title company. And, and I guess let's talk about closing. So closing means that you've signed, like settlement's been completed. You go to the the title company and you settle And then, so that's been completed. You've went there and you've signed and the proceeds of the new loan have been delivered to the lender, to the seller and the escrow closing office and the applicable closing documents have been recorded. So three things have to happen in order for it to close. You have to settle, you have to go meet at the title company, sign the paperwork. The loan proceeds need to be delivered and then things need to be recorded with the, the title company. And so keep in mind that when you sign, It can be, I think you have up to four days after that you can close per the contract. So yeah, 3.2 says, shall be completed no later than four calendar days after settlement. So if let's say your settlement deadline is on a Friday, you go in there and sign. That doesn't mean you get keys on Friday. You technically could get keys, not you would have after four days after. So you'd have Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. You could get keys on Tuesday. It just depends on, when you guys have negotiated like the the possession or the keys to take place. So possession is in addition to closing. So possession, seller shall deliver physical possession of the property to the buyer upon recording. So that's when it closes. That's like instant, like, hey, we've been and recorded with the, the county. Uh, the house is yours. You can go get keys. Or you can do hours after recording. Sometimes sellers need like an extra six hours after recording to get all their stuff out. Or sometimes it's a few days. Sometimes I see people do a few days. If you're ever going past 48 hours, I always recommend that you do uh, a lease back just because it, it clarifies more in there, like who's liable for what things. There can be a deposit, different things like that. I I always like possession to be upon recording Like as soon as the house isn't yours, let's get the new clients in there. Let's get them in their house. There's way less liability. What if the house were to burn down or flood or or something catastrophic happen during that transition period? The, The quicker you can have that, the better. Section four talks about prorations. This is just something to keep in mind. Some HOAs have like HOA transfer fees or stuff like that. So I always, if I'm representing a buyer, I put seller on all of these. 4.2, 4.3 4.2, 4.3C, just in case there's something in there that we miss or we're not aware of. So if there's an HOA reinvestment fee of 1% and you're buying a, a condo in that HOA complex, and like you just added another five grand onto the bill. So those things need to be, you need to be aware of those things and make sure you're not caught with like a big uh, reinvestment fee or 
a special assessment from an HOA. So I always put seller if I'm representing the the buyer on those. And then section five just talks about confirmation of earnest or confirmation of agency. Uh, this is just going over who's representing who. Section six talks about title insurance. These are a lot of just blanket statement forms talking about what title insurance is, the, the, the policies. Section seven talks about seller's disclosure. So in the contract, there's four dates that you need to be aware of. You have your seller's disclosure deadline, your due diligence deadline, your financing and appraisal deadline, and your settlement deadline. So seller's disclosure is the first deadline on that. And this is a deadline for the sellers. This is a deadline by which the sellers need to provide you everything listed in section seven, along with anything else you specify. It's lease agreements. It's the seller's disclosures, which is a long document going over the whole history of the property. It's the title commitment. It's the plat map. It's the CCNRs. It's the HOA minutes and budgets and financial statements from the HOA. Um, any leases, uh, property management agreements, uh, water rights and shares, any other conditions known to the seller relating to environmental properties, building and zoning code violations. So there's a whole slew of things that the sellers need to disclose to the buyers during this this time frame. Typically, I see this time frame about a week. If we're working with sellers, we always try to have all this busted out before we even list the property because that helps us determine the price. So if there's issues with zoning or or environmental problems or a long-term lease, then that's something we obviously need to know before we're listed. So most agents and brokers, listing agents will have all this stuff ready for you. And so within a few days after you go under contract, you should start to see that come through. I normally put about a week deadline here. And again, that's for the sellers to get all that to the buyers to review. Section eight talks about buyer's due diligence. I think every buyer should have a due diligence period. I typically negotiate between one to three weeks here. On average, you're about 10 to 14 days uh, due diligence period. This is a time that you have to review all the seller's disclosures, uh, do a home inspection. And if you want to read through 8.1a, it just talks about a ton of different things that you can check on. The utility services, HOA dues, it just goes on and on and on. It's your time to make sure this is a property that you want to proceed with. If for any reason during that due diligence period that the results are deemed un unacceptable, the buyer may back out and still get their earnest money back. So let's say you had $5,000 down, uh, you do the inspection, you find out the roof is bad, uh, something makes you uncomfortable about the home or it doesn't check out, you can either renegotiate with the seller, say, hey, the roof's bad, we're gonna need an extra $10,000 to, uh, to, to help us make this deal make sense, or we're gonna need to back out of this deal and move on. And so the due diligence period gives you that grace. Again, I always recommend buyers having that due diligence period. Sometimes things can be so competitive that you'll see buyers waive that. It's, it's risky because you're basically going to the table saying, hey, we like what we saw on this property. We haven't really reviewed everything and you're accepting some pretty big risk that like that just the unknown, like you don't know what the title commitment looks like. If there's easements affecting the property, there's, there's a whole list of things that could go wrong. So again, definitely recommend uh, a due diligence period. After that, you have the appraisal condition, which means that it's contingent upon the property appraising 
for not less than the purchase price. So let's say you have a contract. The contract is for 500000 and you have this appraisal condition checked. It is conditioned upon the property appraising for not less than the purchase price. Let's say the appraisal comes back at four fifty, so fifty thousand dollars less. As long as you're within this appraisal condition period, which I normally put three to four weeks here, and as long as we have that appraisal back within that period, if it comes back lower, you're not required to buy the property if it comes back lower. So it's another added protection for the buyer within that time frame. And if it comes back lower, say 450, you can renegotiate with the seller. Hey, the appraisal came back at 450. We'd like you to come down to this the that 450 purchase price because that's what the house is worth. Or you can negotiate. Hey, we're not willing to come down to 450, but we do 460 and you'll just pay 10 grand above. Great. We'll move forward and sign it off. So uh, it just gives you options to make sure that you're not getting into a, a bad financial decision there. And also tied with the appraisal condition is another condition called the financing condition, which means it's buyer's obligation to purchase the property is or is not conditioned upon buyer obtaining financing. So if it is upon buyer obtaining financing, then it basically is there to serve as a protection to the buyer, making sure that they can get the financing that the buyer, that the lender said they qualified for. It takes a while for lenders to go through all the underwriting process. So most of the time it's not like instantly that they know if you qualify for the home, like they got to, I mean, it's, it's a process. So typically, again, I run this with the financing and appraisal deadline. Those two run together. And I normally am three to four weeks out. So if the buyer at week three finds out that he can't get the loan or loses his job or, or something happens, he could still get out during that that contingency period and get all of his earnest money back. Um, there is a section in, in here. It would be under 8.3CI, 8. 8. where it talks about buyer's right to cancel before the financing and appraisal deadline. And you can put some earnest money there. So this basically says if the buyer can cancels after due diligence, but before the financing and appraisal deadline, a portion of buyer's earnest money will be released to the seller. So if you wanted to make your offer look a little bit stronger, you could be like, hey, we have five grand earnest money. We want our due diligence, our earnest money to be fully refundable during that period. But during financing and appraisal, we're willing to make a thousand dollars, five hundred, twenty five hundred, whatever amount you put in there. So if you were to back out after due diligence, a portion of that earnest money would be released to the seller. So it just kind of locks you in a little bit more because what you'll see happen here a lot is some buyers will be like, well, I'm not happy with the terms of the loan, so I'm backing out. And they're basically using it as an an extended due diligence deadline, if that makes sense, because they're it's fairly vague what uh, buyers can back out for during the financing and appraisal deadline. So I guess mostly the finance financing deadline. It just says if, so if buyer and buyer's sole discretion is not satisfied with the terms and condition of the loan, buyer may after due diligence deadline, if applicable, cancel the repsy by providing written notice to the seller no later than the financing and appraisal deadline, whereupon X amount of dollars will be released to the seller. So if you put zero there, you get, seller gets zero and you get all your earnest money back. So those are the main contingency periods. You have your due diligence and your financing and appraisal contingencies. Again, we recommend them for all buyers if you're getting a loan for sure. If you're cash, 
some buyers will still elect to have an appraisal just to verify and have that contingency contingency in there, but maybe not have the financing uh, contingency there. So 8.4 talks about additional earnest money. We never really use that. Nine Section 9 talks about addenda, if there is or is not additional addenda to the REPSI. Quite frequently there are. There's a bunch of other terms and clauses that we can add here that I'm not going to go into. Like if you had your uh, subject to sell of your house or you're asking for closing costs or if you're doing seller financing or FHA or VA, there's there's quite a few there or doing a 1031 exchange. So those are just things that your agent can help you through with depending on your certain circumstances. Section 10, we talk about the home warranty. This is something that a buyer can elect to either have the buyer or seller pay for and you can kind of wrap it into your deal and it covers like the majority of the operating components of a home, the plumbing, the electrical grudge door openers, doesn't cover the roof, like your fridge, your range, AC, furnace, um, all those things. It can, it can be a, a one-year home warranty and you can actually do an even longer home warranty. If you, let's say you put in there uh, $1,200, that can actually get you closer to a two-year home warranty depending on the size of the property. But most home warranties, they're right around five to $600 and they cover the majority of the systems in the house. So that's something that you can elect to have covered or not. The rest of this, let's see... Okay, mediation, section 15, if there's any disputes uh, relating to the REPSI that arise prior to or after closing, um, either shall or may at the options of the parties be first submitted to mediate mediation. Basically, before you're going to court, it's saying, are the, the parties to the contract going to mediation or do they have the option to? I normally put the option to in case one of my clients is like, no, I don't want to mediate. Then they have the option, but sometimes it's better to mediate. So that's totally up to you guys as the buyer. Going down, it talks about defaulting. What happens if a buyer defaults? What happens if a seller defaults? I mean, it's good to read this. I quite frequently, a few times a year, I'll just read through this just to make sure everything's fresh on my mind. But I've gone through this and have referenced everything in the contract that I know this pretty well. The last part that I want to talk about is the acceptance deadline. And and that's buyer offers to purchase the property on the above terms and conditions. If the seller does not accept this offer by the time and date, then this offer shall lapse and the brokerage shall return any earnest money deposit to the buyer. So basically you're giving it a timestamp for the sellers to either for them to accept. It's it's an offer in time for acceptance. A key point I want to distinguish here, a lot of people think that's like a response deadline. It's not. If by 5 p.m. today, I submit this offer to the Joneses and the Joneses don't accept this offer, they could technically counter me at noon tomorrow and say, hey, we, we liked your contract, but the offer price uh, you submitted didn't work. Here's a new addendum to the contract with the price we'd be willing to do. And then that re-engages the contract, even though it was submitted after the acceptance deadline. The acceptance deadline is only for if they're gonna accept. If they're countering, I mean, it could be a few days, it could be a week, it could be a month after, and it could still re-vitalize re, uh, the contract. But typically, as courtesy, it's always good to 
get a response back within the acceptance deadline. And typically a good time for the acceptance is like 24 to 48 hours. So if I was working with some clients, we saw the house this morning, we are gonna write an offer and have it submitted to them by the end of the day today. I would give the sellers until 5 p.m. tomorrow to respond or to accept basically. If it's on the weekend, if let's say it's Friday night, we looked at it, typically we'll give them until Monday at five or, or sometimes I'll do like Monday at noon or something like that. And then section 24 just talks about the contract deadlines. Again, I just wanna reiterate what I normally do here. A typical contract's about 30 to 45 days. Some, if you have all your ducks in a row and you're fully pre-approved, the lenders have everything. I've seen lenders bust out these contracts within like two weeks. And so this can be adjusted depend, depending on how ready you are. Most deals, you're about 30 to 45 days, some longer. Seller's disclosure deadline, I normally do about a week date there. Due diligence deadline, I'm like two weeks out. And I, I typically put these off of the acceptance deadline. So I'll go, if if we're not gonna find out, it's a Friday, we're not gonna find out until Monday, I'll go like two weeks from that Monday or something. Financing and appraisal deadline, I typically go three to four weeks out and settlement is anywhere from four to five, sometimes six weeks out, just depending on the deal. Settlement, I always like to try and do a closing on like a Wednesday, just because sellers typically have a few days after to fund and record. And so um, I try to avoid the closings on Friday because everybody wants keys before the weekend so they can move in. And if you if you settle on a on a Wednesday, chances are a funding and recording on a Friday are are a lot more secure if you settle on a Wednesday. So hopefully that's a mile high uh, overview of the contract. Again, I'm just going over kind of the basics, things to watch out for and understand, a little bit more understanding on the process and timelines and everything like that. So I hope you find this informative and uh, we're looking forward to working with you. Thanks guys.